vision received was that of blood cells traveling throughout the body, supplying the much-needed oxygen and other nutrients to the differing members of the body to fulfill their purpose. Once the blood cells are spent, they must return back to the heart to be refilled before being sent out again and fulfill their purpose. Good afternoon, brothers and sisters in the house. Uh, it's good to hear the uh, testimonies that God is moving and working in our lives and speaking to us. That was wonderful, uh, Brianna, uh, to hear the young people testify that if you just be quiet, if you set aside all the distractions of this life, and you uh, set your heart to being in his presence, that his presence will change you, and he will, he will speak to you. He will speak to you, but not many, especially the youth, will take the time to just shed it. Shed everything out. Get off your cell phone. Get off your electronics. Get off your games. And actually just get into the presence of the Lord. Enjoy the silence. And enjoy... Um, the peace that comes when you actually seek his face. So, um, I want to start today uh, in what I want to share in a parable that we're all familiar with. It's the parable of the sower. And I'm just going to read you Instead of going through all the different sections of the parable of the sower, I'm only going to focus on one section. and I'm going to read all of the parallel passages of that one section. Uh, you can read this in Matthew 13. You can read this in Mark chapter 4. You can read this in Luke chapter 8. Parallel passages are passages in the scripture that are speaking of the same event, the same time, but through the eyes of different uh, writers who were writing and recording uh, what transpired. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 5, in regards to the parable of the sower, the sower was going out to sow, and he sowed a seed that fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. Now right there, he's just talking naturally. He gives a revelation a few verses down in verse 20 to 21. And he tells his disciples that when I was talking about the parable of the sower, I was talking about the person that receives the seed on stony places. This is that type of person that he hears the word, he immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises, because of the word, immediately he stumbles. I like to read parallel passages because I think they give us a better picture and a better understanding of the meaning of the words that were being used. And, and in this particular case, he said, tribulation and persecution arise because of the word and immediately they stumble. It doesn't seem like you know terrible. It means like you stumble, you fell down, and it doesn't mean like it's a catastrophic thing in your life. But when you read the other parallel passages, you realize this was a serious thing. In Mark chapter 4, again, he talks in the natural, some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. And when he gives a revelation in verse 16, he says, these likewise are the ones sown on stony ground. Who? 
When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with gladness. Sounds very much the same as in Matthew. And they have no root in themselves and so endure for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Seems very similar to what Matthew had recorded. The tribulation, the persecution arise specifically because of the word and they stumble. But now listen to Luke 8. He talks in the natural. Some fell on the rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Didn't describe it that way in the first few verses, so I have to take it all into account to get the big picture. And when he gives the revelation, he says in verse 13, but the ones on the rock are the ones who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. That gives me a different picture than just stumbling. When I've always taught on the parable of the sower, I always noticed the seed never failed in what it was going to do. It sprang, except for the wayside where the seed was taken up by the birds, it sprang up. And it was doing its job. But in certain grounds, in certain places, something happened that aborted it. In this particular place, in the stones, we see that they received it. They heard it. They were joyful about it. But because there was no root in themselves... In the time of temptation, or I like the word testing, and I, and I don't mean to, to knock the different translations, but testing was more an appropriate word, I guess, depending on what the, way, the way you look at it. But they fell away, and that's concerning because when we talk about the man of sin, we talk about the son of perdition, we think that that could only happen to that type of guy. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. But I see, when I look at these words, that this is happening in the church. There are many in the church that when they first heard the word, they heard it, they received it, they were full of joy. But sometime after, because of the word, because of the things that they had first were initially overjoyed about, first that they received, the first things that they believed, they then began to stumble in some descriptions. But in this description in Luke, they fell away. And I don't know, maybe some of you are like me, and some, maybe some of you are nothing at all like me, but when I read the word, I kind of start analyzing myself. Checking kind of where, where am I in, in, in all of this? Um, because I recognize probably more than, a, than I'm willing to let on my deficiencies, my weaknesses. And so I always look and see how I can uh, maybe rectify some areas in my life. So I'd like to go to Psalm 95 and consider some words that were written there. 
The psalmist says, oh, come, let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. We sing that song so many times. I'm sure we know it. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And then something that catches my attention. Today, if you will hear his voice. What catches my attention is that word today. Because that psalmist wrote this thousands of years ago. And yet when we read it, he's talking about you. When you listen to these words today. If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hardening. As in the day of rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Some some uh, translations use the word temptation again. Just like that other word that I said. Yeah, it's more like a testing. When your fathers did what? Tested me. Tried to prove me. And they tried me, and it gets me this this next uh, set of words. Though they saw my work. These were a people that saw the mighty power of God in a natural, supernatural way. They saw things in front of their face. They saw things that were tangible that were concrete, that were, when you think of it, were totally supernatural to happen, yet they happened right before their eyes. We look and and we recognize that the things that the Israelites saw, we only see that in movies. Make believe. No, they saw it. We'll we'll analyze it. We'll look real deep into what it is that they experience. But the things that we see that are like, oh, that can never happen. We can only see that in movies. They experienced it. They saw it with their own eyes. They heard it with their own ears. They experienced it in, in their own flesh. All of this power and might of God. And yet read how it's described. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Because it says, after they tried me for 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray where? In their hearts. The parable of the sower, if you have not noticed, is all about the heart of man. And they do not know my ways. So I swear, so I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. And so I guess the question that I have to ask myself, a question that I'd like us all to ask ourselves, is there areas in my heart that is hardened? Is there areas in my heart that can be described as a stony place? Because if you can be honest with yourself and if you can look in the mirror and see yourself for what you truly are, imperfect, weak, not really all together like you put on for everyone to think that everything is all right with you. Can you recognize that if you do indeed have areas 
of stony places in your heart, then you also have to recognize that you are at risk of falling away. A stony place is not something to just ignore. A stony place is not something that you can just brush under the rug like it's just some lint and dust and hide it from everyone. It's something that you need to deal with. Because he also says in Ezekiel 3.7 regarding the house of Israel, he's talking to the son of man, Ezekiel. I love that, that phrase. He only called Ezekiel the son of man. He never called him by his name. He said, son of man, son of man. He said, son of man, the house of Israel will not listen to you because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent. And what? Hard-hearted. There's an issue of the heart. There's an issue of stoniness or of hardness as it's described in the Old Covenant. I don't know if you know this, but let me uh, assume that you don't. You are not this simply or merely this physical body that you are able to express to others. Because if God were to remove your true essence your body would be dead. Your body is not you. Who you are is a spirit. And I don't know whether you know this, but the scriptures use the word for your spirit many times, countless times, as a heart. Your heart is what makes you you. Your heart is what through your mind and your actions and your words and your deeds in this body is expressing and communicating to others around you who you really are. And you know that the Lord doesn't look at the physical appearance of man. What does he look at? The heart. So I want you to understand that your heart has senses. Just like your body has senses. You can smell, you can touch, you can see, you can hear. You can feel all the five senses. Maybe I missed one. Maybe I repeated one. I don't know. But what I'm saying is your heart, your true essence, your spirit has senses. And in Matthew 13, Jesus describes that the heart of this people has grown dull. Their senses have, have become callous. They don't sense, they don't feel, they don't hear, they don't see. It says their ears are hard of hearing. There's that word hard again. Their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with the ears. Lest they should understand with their what? With their hearts. So not only is the heart hearing, it's seeing, and it's understanding. It's comprehending. In other words, it has a mind. Like our body has a mind, so does our heart. A mind that thinks, that considers, that, that reflects. It sees. It hears. It comprehends. It understands. It knows things. It perceives things. And so we need to consider... My flesh is not what I'm supposed to be focused on. I'm not supposed to focus on the natural things, the earthly things. My things, my attention, my focus should be on the things 
in the spirit, the things in the heaven, the things that are high above. And my spirit is not of this world. It's high above. I need to have a, what, what do we call the, a, a reality check or a gut check. And I guess what I'm trying to do is have a heart check. He said, Matt, Jesus said, um, to the Pharisees, because they came to ask him a, a question, and, and he responded to them. Jesus said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And so I, wanna, I want you to consider and reflect upon that. In the beginning, you were not supposed to divorce. But what led to that being allowed or permitted was specifically what? The hardness of your heart. Was that God's will that you divorce? It never was. Because marriage is a depiction of his relationship with his church. And he will always ever remain faithful to his church. He will always remain faithful to his church. But because there was hardness, because there was something that, that fought, that, that, was, that was not malleable in God's hands, you began to what? Divorce which was not looked upon in high regard in God's eyes. Jesus, many times as he traveled about, he became frustrated. I think that's a good word, frustrated. Because he wanted to do all of these Wonderful, mighty, and glorious things. Like, like a hen would spread his wings and take in his children. He wanted to bring them in. He wanted to, to sh overshadow them. He wanted to, to protect them. He wanted to secure them. He wanted to be their peace. He wanted to be their refuge. And everywhere he went, he met with resistance. I mean, I can read countless of scriptures, but then we'd be here all day reading all the Gospels. So hopefully you have done your due diligence and you kind of can figure out, maybe the Lord is speaking to specific uh, events in the scriptures where, where, where it coincides with what I'm talking about. But the one I'm going to use, and I want, you to th I want you to think about answering this question as I read it. What was the first emotional descriptive response that you hear? as I read this particular scripture in Mark 3, 5. Figure out what was the first emotional response. He says, And when he had looked around them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Tell me, what was the first emotional response you saw there? Anger. Anger. If you don't think that the stony places in your heart, the hardness of your own heart, doesn't do anything at all, doesn't give any, any uh, 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 
doesn't cause God to respond in some sort of way, then you're not reading the scriptures. And there's a reason why he is angry. I mean, that to me is the first, it's first anger. And then it's why? Because he's grieved. It hurts him when he is looking around for faith. And there is none. There's no one that will believe. There's no one that will trust. And so I continue on Mark. That was Mark chapter 3, 5. So I use this other example, Mark chapter 6, 52. Jesus had done a mighty miracle. I mean... I know we don't seem to be a lot here, but it, I think you would be totally impressed if I had a package of, I don't know, M&Ms and I was able to feed it to you like if it was a feast dinner and you were totally satisfied and fulfilled if I was able to do some sort of miracle. I think you'd be very impressed with that. Well, and and. and there's not a lot here today, right? But Jesus didn't do it to just this many people. He took five loaves, two fish. <laughs> and it wasn't like a big whale of a fish. It's just two little peeny fish and five loaves of bread. And he was able to feed how many? Oh, come on. Tell me you did your due diligence. He did 5,000 one time. 4,000 another time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, five and 4,000. So he, so this particular time was 5,000. Five loaves and two fish. And, 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 and you were the one that took the fish and the loaves from him, and you went to each particular little group of 100 or maybe a 50, and you were dispersing it to all of them. You, you became a part of the miracle because you were dispensing it to all of them. Up to five thousand people. I don't think we can. I don't. I don't think we can. Per, you know, perceive that. Maybe because we don't have a congregation of five thousand. Maybe it's hard for us to understand it. We've seen stadiums filled with eighty thousand, and and that's huge. But five thousand people, and you fed them with two two fish and five loaves. I mean, that's that's natural, but it's supernatural. Totally awesome. That and then you were a part of it because you were. I mean. It, it's not like you heard it from a friend, from a friend. No, you literally took the fish from Jesus' hands and the loaves and went to 5,000 people and fed them. And they were all satisfied. And there were leftovers. You saw there were leftovers. Who were the leftovers for? You and your 11 disciples and Jesus. You saw that. And what does he say in Mark 6, 52? For they had not understood about the loaves because... Their heart was hardened. Go to Matthew, Mark 8, 17. Jesus is speaking about the same thing. It's recorded that the, 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 the disciples didn't understand what just took place about the loaves because their heart was hardened. And Jesus exposes it because they're, they're, they're talking amongst themselves. And Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, 17, Jesus says, being aware of it, said to them, why do you reason? Because you have no bread. You guys are concerned. Wait, wait. 
What? What? You guys are concerned because you don't seem to have any food right now? Do, do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet understand? Is your heart still hardened? If you took part in a miracle of two fish and five loaves and ended up feeding 5,000 people and a couple days later or a week later, I don't know how long it was later, you don't have any food, why would you be worried? I mean, you think naturally, you're not there, you're not perfect, I get that, but you would think, man, we, let's talk to Jesus. I, I would, I, I would tell God, I hope I would. I mean, he's still alive. I'm still walking, talking with him. He just fed 5,000. Why would I be worried that we, uh, me and my, my 11 brothers don't have anything to eat? Let's just go talk to Jesus. I'm sure he can help us out. And yet, they were troubled by it. This issue of, of hardened hearts is serious. Because I could see that when Jesus has to deal with it, he gets angry. And he gets grieved. And so he's addressing it. So this, this, this hardened heart, I believe, is unveiled or, or it's, it's true meaning. The root, if you will, is, a, is in this verse that I'm about to read. In Matthew chapter 13, 58, Jesus is going about... He's, he's, he's uh, teaching, he's, he's doing mighty miracles, um, and he gets to a place, and it says in this particular place, now he did not do many mighty works there, because of what? Their unbelief. And in Mark 6, 6, if I go back to Mark 6, 6, it says Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. And you would think, well, Jesus was God in the flesh. What is he marveling at? What is he so surprised at in Assange? He was authentically a man, dependent upon the Spirit of God to do and say everything that he did. So, yeah, there were things that were going on that he was like, I am astonished that they don't get it. What more do I have to do? So, how does he try to address it? He teaches. It says the very next sentence, then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. He's trying to address what? Unbelief. You remember the time where the disciples were sent out two by two? You remember how they had power over the enemy and how they were healed of sick and how they were able to cast out demons and how they were able to do mighty miracles. And, and, and something happened that they ran into a particular situation and they couldn't handle it. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And what was Jesus's first response to them? Because of what? Your unbelief. 
Now, did he say later on, like two verses down, how be it this come not out by prayer and fasting? Yes, he did say that. But what was the initial response? What was the first answer to the question? Your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will be moving. Nothing will be impossible for you. And so I submit to you that this hardness of heart that we have been looking at in the old covenant, this stony place that was in the heart of, 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 of the ground is unbelief. Do you remember when a particular father came to Jesus for his child? And he said something that I believe is what I'm trying to address with myself, that I, I believe the Lord wants us to all address for ourselves. Father wanted his child. I mean, she was on death's door. And it says in Mark 9, 24, that immediately the father of the child cried out to Jesus and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my what? Unbelief. I personally think that it is an honorable thing that we wrestle and that we fight against doubt and unbelief and admit it. I don't believe that Jesus looked down on this man. I believe he looked at him and said, I admire your efforts and that you are willing to be transparent before me and admit that you're struggling with this. Because I know I'm not perfect. I know that I have yet to be to have that perfect faith that is talked of in the scriptures. I'm not there yet. I realize that. Sometimes there comes times and scenarios and situations in my life that almost cripple me. Things that I feel like are totally out of my power and control. As I'm sure this father felt like it was totally out of his power and control to, to save his daughter, daughter whom he loved. And yet, look, he comes to Jesus in some sense of faith, saying, Lord, I believe, but I'm struggling. Help my unbelief. Because when you are able to admit that you're struggling with doubt and unbelief, you're being honest, and it's a sign that you are fighting the good fight of faith. Better that you be fighting than that you have quit. And just shrink in, in passivity and do nothing. At least he's seeking somebody who might help his daughter. Somebody that he heard about that's able to do mighty miracles. And it seems like the hand of God is upon him and all everybody's talking bad about him and blasphemy about him. I keep hearing he's healed this person. He's healed the layman. He's healed the person that couldn't see. He's raised up this person from the dead. I've got to try, even though I have doubts. This is a sign of you working out your own 
salvation with fear and trembling. It takes work. Work like... Uh, recently, someone crashed into my mailbox. It was, it was a while ago, I think within a year, and uh, had to get it replaced, and, and the husband was going to come later on and, and fix it for me. It was a, a mother who had brought our son to, to our house, and so we didn't have a mailbox for a while, and I, I had to start digging in and got to the cement, um, digging with a shovel, got to the cement, and I could not budge that hole that was in the middle. I, I, I couldn't do it. And I was struggling and I was sweating and I was getting frustrated and I was digging, trying to dig deeper and trying to dig more outside. And I just couldn't feel like I could move this thing. And I was just, ugh, I, I thought, what am I going to do? I, I've got to tie some sort of chain to this and use a truck and rip it out of the ground. I can't move this thing. And whatever, as I was Thinking about this, this teaching, that, that particular instance came to mind because I didn't stop. I kept trying and trying, and finally I got like my shovel off on the side, and I was about to break the shovel. I mean, the pole was about to break. It really was. And, and then I just kept having to dig around and dig around, and I thought I could never move this thing. I thought it was like this big, huge block of cement. I just didn't know how big it was. I didn't know how deep it went. I just... I. I was just battling doubt. I was fighting against it, yet I kept digging around and digging around. And finally, I got a little bit of it to move. And, I mean, a little bit. I'll talk a little bit. I, w I was there. I can't remember how long. But finally, I finally got it to move. Finally got it out. And though it was so hard to get out, by the time I did get out, it was heavy, but it wasn't as big as I was imagining it to be. I mean, it was hard. And I just thought it was just this big block. It's like, what? Who put this mailbox here with so much cement? This is crazy. How far? How deep? How wide do I got to go? But finally, when I got it out and it was heavy, but it wasn't as big as I thought it was. And I think that's many times our battles and our testings in life. They're not as big as we think we are, but they we do have to fight through it. We do have to struggle and wrestle against the doubt and the unbelief. And some of you know that, you know, I'm 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 been going to the gym a lot ever since my daughter got her injury. You know, she's had to go get physical therapy, so I'll just go and I'll exercise. And, you know, building up your faith, I see it now as akin to kind of how do you build up your body? Through what? Resistance. Now, I get to choose the resistance, I get to choose how much weight I will bench or how much weight I will curl or how much weight I will squat. I get to choose that. So it's like, if it's too hard for me, eh, let me take a few pounds off. But in life, when we're in Christ, we don't get to choose that most of the time. God chooses it for us. 
and puts exactly the type of pressure, exactly the type of weight that we need. And if we have the right perspective, no matter what we go through in life, we know that even though it's so hard, I am being strengthened by this resistance. It could be socially with, with people that we work with. It could be uh, just things going on in our life that we didn't ask for, that have nothing to do with people, finances, um, The the list can go on and on. But all of those things, if we're in Christ, we need to recognize that God is not only giving us that measure of faith, but is giving us life circumstances to strengthen our faith so that we will trust him more and more. Because it's not a matter that we don't believe that there's a God. That's not our problem. And let me tell you something, that wasn't the Israelites' problem either. When the Israelites were dealing with unbelief, it wasn't unbelief in God. They knew there was a God. That wasn't the issue, and yet they fell away. They died in the wilderness without ever reaching the promised land. So how, do, how is our faith strengthened? What is God doing in our lives He's creating resistance in our life. But before we resist, we have to do something. Anybody know what I might be getting at? Before we resist, what must we do, Althea? Thank you. In other words, we need to get right standing with God. Because if we're outside of God's will, don't even worry about resisting. You're going to try to bench press and you're going to crush in your chest. You're not ready for that amount of weight because you're not submitting to God and letting him put the weight on you. Because he knows exactly what you can handle. He knows what grace he's given to you to be able to handle a certain amount of weight. So when you put your life in God's hands, put it in his will, and you start walking in his word, then you can resist the devil. And when you resist the devil, it may be a short time, it may be a long time, but you must resist the devil. And as you do so, your faith grows stronger because you see how God gives you victory after victory after victory. And you go from faith to faith and you go from glory to glory. Job is a perfect example of this. Did God already know what Job's heart was? Yes, Satan was trying to sift throughout the earth and figure out somebody. And God was the one that said, have you looked at my servant, Joe? No, yeah, yeah. I can't touch him. You don't let me do anything. But if you did, he'll curse you to your face. If you did, if you let me at him, he'll curse you. Oh, really? Mm, Like you know him better than I do. Go, have Adam. Just don't touch his life. And he had Adam. And Job struggled. He lost his children. We know that. He suffered boils. We know that. He didn't ask for that. Like I said, you just want to strengthen your faith and you start asking God to strengthen your faith, some things are going to happen in your life that you didn't ask for. But you can handle it. 
You can handle anything that God allows in your life. Even if it's the enemy himself coming at you. You can handle it. But Job, how did he handle it? What, what, I, can't, I don't even know how long he was struggling through that. But it had to have been a while. He lost his children for a while. He didn't get his children back for a while. He was struggling with bulls for a while, at least a week. His friends were there staring at him for a week at least. He was struggling. That was hard. I can't imagine what that would have been. But he eventually got children, so it had to be at least a year later. He did get a new family, and he did get a double portion of whatever he had lost from before. And yet Job did not lose his integrity. He did not lose his faith because there was something in him that God already knew. He's going to hold fast to me no matter what happens to him. You don't know that, devil, but I do. And so Jude tells us, beloved, build yourselves up. Work out. Work out. Get in that gym route. Strengthen yourselves on your most what? Holy faith. Praying what? In the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came one day to the eleven as they sat at the table and he rebuked them. He rebuked them for unbelief and hardness of heart. And it says, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. These are his disciples. They had hardness of heart before he was resurrected. They had hardness of heart after he was resurrected. They didn't believe anybody that already saw him. Now, it says in the scriptures in Romans, what if some did not believe? That's that rhetorical question, Paul. What if some don't believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? In other words, will because these people don't believe in God, does that mean God is... His faithful is made null and void? Absolutely not. There's a movie that says, you know, well, not everyone believes what you believe. And the response to that, the person said, my belief does not require them to. God's existence, his faithfulness, his might, his power does not necessitate anybody believing in him. For it to happen. Because it's his character. It's his essence. It's his integrity. He's going to be who he is because that's who he is. Regardless of whether you believe in it or not. Abraham is another example of man who had to exercise his faith and waited long and hard for that promise to come to pass because he was told that you I have made you a father of many nations he was told by God that he was 75 years old 
he was given the promise, you and Sarah will have a child. He said, your descendants will be as the stars in the heaven. He didn't even have a child in the moment. He didn't even have one child in the moment. How is he going to have descendants as the stars of the heavens? But it says that Abraham in Romans 4, 13, was not weak in the faith. He did not consider his own body. He was already old. He was nearly a hundred years old. He didn't consider the deadness in Sarah's womb. And, and that vapor producing factory of, of eggs being, you know, let out through the fallopian tube, that had probably stopped a long time ago. There's no way possible, not naturally, that anything that God said should have happened to Abraham and Sarah. But whether they doubted or not, God, because of his integrity, because of who he is, if he said that I'm going to do this through you and Sarah, whether you believe it or not, it's going to be done. And it was. But it says here that he did not, he was not weak in the faith. He did not consider his body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. It says Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through what? Unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. All the while that he waited from 75 to 99, 24 years, he waited for this promise. Now, did he slip up and try to think he had to do something to make it happen? Yes, I'm not going to ignore or neglect the fact that he went to Hagar because Sarah told him to go sleep with Hagar so we can get this thing done. What I do see is that he did not waver. He did not think that God made a mistake and God was not going to come through. He just thought he had to do something to make it come at the pass. And that was in the flesh. And that was a mistake. But it wasn't unbelief. was just deceived. He got, he got straight off the path, but it wasn't unbelief. And because of that, what does it say in verse 22? It was accounted to him for righteousness. He remained faithful to God, and God remained faithful to bring out the promise that he said he would to him. It describes the children of Israel in Romans chapter 11. Regarding the children of Israel and the Gentiles. And how, how in the world are they now together again? And Paul says, well said, because of unbelief, they, meaning those in the past of the children of Israel, were broken off, and you stand by faith. But do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God. They both are there, his goodness and his severity. On those who fell, 
Remember how it was described those who fell? In unbelief. Severity. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. Anybody know what Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, describes an evil heart? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 19. We are warned. The church is warned. Not the Gentiles. Not those outside the church. The church is warned. Beware, brothers, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Stony places in your heart will cause you to fall away. That's what it said in Luke. So they must be dealt with. Unbelief is not something he is going to tolerate. Because an Un, if there are places in your heart of unbelief, what does it cause you to do? To depart from the living God. You must deal with unbelief. You must confront unbelief. You must admit that there may be times where you struggle. But as long as you're fighting and resisting and holding on to the promises of God, this should not happen. We should not depart from the living God. So he tells us, he instructs us, he, he encourages us to encourage one another daily. I know the battles, I know the struggles you're going through, but you need to be transparent with one another and allow each other to encourage you. That's why it's so important that we meet in church on a regular basis, hear of the testimonies, hear of the good things that God is doing, and just share with one another on a one-to-one -one basis, whether it's on the phone, whether it's by email, whether it's by text, because we need to hear that. We could struggle so badly on our own, and the enemy is trying to isolate us so that we are going about it on our own, and yet that's what the body's for. Exhort one another daily while it is called what? Today. It's got to be about today. Lest any of you be hardened. Unbelief will harden you more through what? The deceitfulness of sin. For we become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. You see, we become partakers of the Christ if we do something. We need to hold fast. We need to hold on to the confidence that we had at the beginning. Like every seed into every type of soil, whether it was thorny, whether it was stony, whether it was a good uh, soil, they all received it with joy. They were all believing. They were all confident. And we got to hold fast to that. So it says, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. For who having heard, rebelled. They heard the voice of the Lord. Indeed, was it and not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom he was what? Angry. How long? Forty years. I'm telling you, he is angry at unbelief. 
We'll look at that in just a second. Well, how could, why would he be so angry at unbelief? Was it not with those who sinned, whose courses fell in the wilderness, and to whom he did swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Unbelief is the root. It caused them to sin. It caused them to rebel. It caused them to question. It caused them to do all the things that we saw them do. It was unbelief that was the issue that never got dealt with. So it's been said many times before. Bishop has said this so many times. Attitude is everything. And everything is attitude. There's a, a man who, whose name is Roy T. Bennett. And I'm just going to quote him. I want you to think about these words because whether he's in Christ or not, I don't know. But these words were, were actually very biblical and very true. Change your attitude and change your life. You can't control what happens to you in your life. But you can always control how you respond to it. The way you choose to respond is a reflection of your attitude. By changing your attitude, you also change your perspective, and thus you change your life. So, there's something to be said about being pessimistic or optimistic when you don't have Christ. Okay, there's something to be said about that. I mean, I think we would generally think that those that are optimistic, they kind of have more enjoyable life than those that are pessimistic. Would you all agree? Just naturally without Christ. Okay. But I think there's something even more to be said about being pessimistic or optimistic when you're actually in Christ. Because I think pessimism, without it being checked or changed, it leads to what happened to the Israelites. So the Israelites came out of the, the, the Egypt, right? We read it through the book of Exodus. And there were how many miracles in Exodus? At least 10 or more? You say at least 10? Is that what you said? At least 10. So she's not sure. It's at least 10. Minimum 10. Just to get out of Egypt. Okay. So... Let's try to, if we can, use your mind's eye, use your imagination, be creative, and get out of today. And put yourself as an Israelite way back when. Your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather all lived in Egypt. That's all you know. You've lived in Egypt for 400 years. Your family, since Joseph and you, you, I mean, you had the delicacies of Egypt. Not bad. We got the Nile River providing us the crops. And we've got, well, I mean, we got everything. And we've had it for generation after generation. But you know what? Something happened over the generations. And we got a new pharaoh. And he forgot who our Joseph was. And oh, no, now 400 years down the line, we're suffering we're in bondage, we're working, whereas we thought we were doing nice things and working with them, now we're working for them, and 
we don't have anything for ourselves and what is going on? And so cries of deliverance started coming about and you were crying out and Moses comes some man out of nowhere who you heard had murdered an Egyptian and he ran away and now he's back and he's saying he's sent by God and he's got this staff there and I heard about his staff changed to a serpent and it ate up all the other serpents and boy, you know what? If he's going to bring about deliverance, I'm happy, I'm joyful. Okay, and then what happened? we get 10 plagues and we're still in Egypt how long are we going to be here water to blood they were in Goshen but I, I, I can imagine that some of their curiosity might have taken them to the river and they could see this blood and they might dip their hand in it oh yeah that really is blood that was a real thing they saw it for themselves and then what came next? Anybody know? Ribbit. Ribbit. Frogs. All across the land. Your toe was touching frogs everywhere you went. That's never happened before. I can't. No, no other nation has ever talked about this plethora of frogs run wild throughout their land. And then what came next? Not yet. Lice. Lice. Just, just, just everywhere. In, in all of our livestock. I mean, it's just lice. Wait, wait, no one's ever met. You're, are you there? You're seeing this. Water to blood, frogs everywhere, lice, and then what came next? Bugs. Flies everywhere. Flies. I mean, you see a dead carcass, you see a bunch of flies, but these flies covered the sky. Then you had the livestock died. Then you had boils. Everybody's suffering boils. Then you had hail. I've seen hail, but not to this degree. This is insane. And then you got locusts. They're eating all the things. And then there's darkness. Oh my, what? How long is this going to last? Are we ever going to see the sun again? And then we ended with the death of all the firstborn. You saw all of this. You can't argue. It happened. You saw when you left Pharaoh because he finally let you go. You saw a pillar of fire behind you. It separated you from the army of, of, of Egypt. And they couldn't move. You know they wanted you back. They wanted to put shackles around you. They wanted to bring you and drag you back to Egypt with all of their chariots and all of their horses. And yet there was a fire there. And right in front of you, you saw the water separate. You saw this. You walked through dry land. You saw the walls of water on both sides. You can't argue against that. I mean, you just experienced it. And then you see a cloud by day giving you shade. Every day, every day, yes, every day, and you had fire at night, you had light all the time. You saw all of this. And you heard 
a cloud came down on a mountain and the earth started to tremble and you felt it in your feet and you saw lightnings and you saw thunderings and you began to quake in your knees and you got down on your face. You didn't know what was happening. You saw all of this. You heard it all. You felt it all. And the moment you were taken to the borderline of the promised land, after having seen and witnessed everything that I just described, you don't want to go in because of unbelief. After all that? I mean, sometimes our own children will question whether we're going to do this or that for you. Son, you've been in my house for 18 years. I've been cleaning your diapers and giving you food and giving you this and giving you that. And, and, and after 18 years, you know, you think I'm just going to drop you like a sack of potatoes and kick you to the curb? You think that's my heart for you? That would make me angry. If that's what you really believed after all this time. So how, do I understand God's anger? Yeah. How much he did for them for as long as he did it for them. And now we're in the promised land. And I'm telling you, I'm going to give you all of these enemies. I'm going to wrap them up in a bow and you're going to have them in the palm of your hand. And now you don't want to go. After everything I just did for you, I just took care of the Egyptian army. Yeah, he was angry, and so they suffered due to their unbelief for 40 years, and they died there. But you know what? Does the unbelief of the Israelites negate the faithfulness and make null the, void, the, the faithfulness of God? Nope. No, because even while they were there, he fed them day after day after ever-loving day for 365 days. 60 days a year times 40. That's a lot. Manna. Manna. Every day for 40 years. They got water from a rock in the middle of the desert. In the middle of the wilderness. The bitter waters were made clean by a tree that touched the water. He continued to be faithful to them. Their raiment and their sandals didn't wear out for 40 years. And yet in every hardship that came their way during the wilderness, they immediately began to murmur they immediately began to complain. They entertained the idea of returning back to Egypt and going to captivity. We shake our heads at that. And if I'm honest, there are some times in my life where I just, I'm battling with unbelief. Is God going to really do that? For me? For my family? Is he really going to change this circumstance in my job? Is he really going to give me the finances that we need? 
to get out of the debt that we're in. And for you, it might be something else. Is he really going to give me the type of friends that I need so that I can be a blessing and they could be a blessing to me? Is he really going to do that? I have never seen any of the 10 plagues of Egypt. I never saw water separated. I never saw a pillar of fire by, you know, separating me from an enemy. I never saw um, waters that were bitter turn sweet. I, I, I never saw manna day after day after day after day. And why it's, and, 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 and I never saw any of that. I'm pretty sure none of you have either. Um, I think that's why it was so important that Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I haven't seen any of that stuff, but I believe. I believe in the inherent goodness of God. I believe that he is for his people. He is not against them. I believe that he's not going to kick him to the curb. I believe that he is faithful and that he, he will not uh, uh, reject them if, if they are seeking his face. I believe that he loves us. But it does say in the scriptures that he blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts so that he would heal them. In Romans 2.5, it says, In accordance with the hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see, I, 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 I think I'm coming to the realization that if I don't confront these areas of unbelief in me, that's what I'm storing up for myself. Because the Israelites had areas of unbelief. They believed in God. They knew there was a God. They wanted to make a God of their own. And they tried. But they absolutely knew there was a God. And it was the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who created all mankind. They knew that. And yet they still fall away because they never dealt with their own unbelief. And so they are a testimony or a lesson to us that we need to beware, brethren, that an evil heart of unbelief did not be developed in you as it did in the days of your fathers, in the days of testing, in the days of the wilderness, and you know what happened to them. So when we go into the struggles in our life, our attitude, our perspective has to change. And we need to go it with a right perspective that, wow, that's not what I was expecting, Lord, but I trust in you. And that, that, that to me was the key. I think unbelief is actually, they didn't trust that he would. They didn't trust that he was able. It's not enough to know that there is a God that exists. You must trust him. You must trust him. 
that no matter what you're going through, he's given you grace. No matter what you're going through, there is a way out. No matter what you've done, if you repent and you confess, there is a way of escape for you, no matter how bad it was, no matter how ugly it was. You can find redemption in Jesus Christ because he will wash you, cleanse you of all sin. Not just some, all sin if you will confess and if you will repent. So he says, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness. He designates a certain day saying in David today. After such a long time, it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because we are now in Christ. I would say for the most part, everyone here is in Christ or working their way in that direction. And we of all people on the face of this earth should be the most optimistic. We should be the most hopeful. We should be the ones declaring with certainty the greater things to come because God is for us. We should be the ones expecting that the promises will be fulfilled. We should be the ones expecting the favor that we shall attain in this life. Not just in the afterlife. Not because we deserve it. We know that. But because God is going to be magnified the most. God is going to be glorified the most when he is faithful to us now. To provoke others to jealousy. To provoke others to just be curious about who is the God of that person? Why is she so happy all the time? Why is she so thankful all the time? Why is she so optimistic all the time? And I think I could speak to that because before I came into Christ, I was pessimistic. I expected the worst. I, like Charlie Brown, I expected the next bad thing to happen. I just did. All the time. If my car was going to get messed up, it for sure was going to get messed up within the week. Something was going to happen. It's going to be oil, the tires, the, 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 rotor, the rotors, the, the steering. Something was going to happen. I just knew it all the time. And I expected it. But when Christ got a hold of me, I don't expect that anymore. Now I have a different perspective. If it happens, God's going to provide a way. And that's how we need to be when we walk out this faith with Christ. Amen. Thus is the ministry of our Father's heart through us. Our utmost desire is to be in the Father's heart, to know the Father's heart, and express the Father's heart to you. If you appreciate listening to this podcast and were blessed, pass it along to someone else by text, email, or word of mouth in the hopes that they might be positively impacted as you were. If you are interested in supporting our efforts, we would ask you to consider the following. One, pray for us. Two, Leave a positive rating or review with whomever you listen to our podcast with. And three, if you desire to contribute monetarily, you can do so at paypal.me slash jbenjesus or cash app dollar sign jbenjesus or Venmo jbenjesus. That's J-B-E-N-J-E-S-U-S. God bless.